Thank you, Dad. It's uh, good to be with you tonight. I'm so happy to uh, be in South Carolina for a little bit. Uh, for a small uh, season of this vacation, uh, we will be here uh, uh, hanging out with family. It's been good to be back uh, for a little bit. It's always good to come back and, uh, and preach in my home church, uh, my uh, home home church in the sense that it's the church I grew up in. It's always good to be back here. Uh, I have a lot of pressure on me because I have to be... Uh, I have to preach succinctly, and I do that because I'm a guest speaker. Uh, I also have to do that because uh, of my dad. I have to prove him wrong, uh, that uh, he's the long-winded generation, and I'm not. Uh, and it's a double whammy because a couple weeks ago uh, at my church, I will confess to you, I can be open to you, at my church I preached for almost an hour, uh, and it, was, it wasn't something I was trying to preach for a long time, but uh, I ended up preaching for a long time, but it was okay, because in the sermon, I blamed it on him, so I was cleared of all the guilt for that. Um, <laughs> uh, but no, it's really good to be with you, and I won't try and keep you too long, but uh, you could turn, and this may scare you, uh, you could turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119. Um, you're probably already scared. Um, but no, uh, things are going really well at our church. We have been so uh, blessed and pleased with how God has uh, directed us to Stonington Baptist Church. We couldn't be more thrilled. It's hard to believe that it's already been a year uh, since we've been there. Uh, it seems like it flew by in a flash. Uh, we blinked and it's been a year. And uh, I guess that's what uh, ministry does to you at times. Uh, but we have been so thankful for all that we've been able to learn and experience and do. And we're still getting our feet settled, so to speak, in, in our area and in our church. And we are just so thankful, though, that what God is teaching us. And uh, we could not be happier. I, I, I told uh, my, my, my board of, of directors, just uh, that I couldn't believe I was so happy to be in a place uh, above the, the Mason-Dixon. Uh, but I am, and the Lord is doing good things. And uh, so the Lord is really moving on us. And uh, I think God has us right where he wants us. And so in that sense, we are so incredibly at peace. Uh, the Lord is uh, definitely keeping us stilled and calmed. Um, and uh, we are so thankful that he's directed us to this ministry. Uh, tonight, though, I want to bring you to uh, a stanza of Psalm 119. Uh, I love this chapter. Psalm 119 is just an incredible uh, series of verses, 176 verses. Uh, and yet, despite this chapter's length, I will submit to you that I think um, this chapter is also uh, one that has the simplest of messages. If you are familiar with Psalm 118, you might know that it, it is everywhere constantly talking about the Word of God. It's somewhere related to uh, using a, a synonym for, so to speak, the Word of God as David is working out in his, in his own life. And I think if you read all of these verses, you will find that I think the message of Psalm 119 is this. That God's word is unceasingly relevant. No matter what you are going, to, uh, going through, no matter what situation of life that you find yourself in, no matter what season God has you in, God's word has something to say to you. God's word has something for you. God's word has something to say to you no matter what circumstance or condition you find yourself in. There's something that you can find in God's word. There's, I will say it this way. There's no circumstance or situation that you can imagine that God's word cannot alleviate. It's that powerful and pervasive. It's that strong. It's that sovereign. And I think that's sort of the point that King David here is pressing into. 
Yes, for 176 verses, he's leaning into this idea that the, the scriptures, God's promises, are the preeminent thing that, that must prevail in the heart and life of the Christian. And I think that for some, reading through this chapter might seem tedious. <laughs> A lot of the verses are going to sound similar if he reads straight through it. It's going to sound like he's repeating himself, but I think that's precisely the point. Because there's no season of life you can imagine where God's word isn't relevant. Where God's word isn't uh, sort of uh, um, uh, relevant for you or real to you or has something to say to you. And I think that that to me is one of the most burdensome things that I've come to realize. Um, even just being a, a one year pastor, senior pastor of a church is, is this. Is that the most prevail, prevalent problem within the church today is biblical illiteracy. People don't read their Bibles. People's aren't, people, uh, most people that come to church aren't in their Bibles like they should be. In fact, uh, in 2018, uh, uh, I will just bore you with some st- st- statistics to kind of prove that. Um, t- in 2018, Legionnaire Ministries released this uh, state of theology survey. This was, uh, of course, a couple of years ago. But they had their respondents to this survey react to some statements that they would make about theology or doctrine or what have you. And one of the statements has stuck with me, especially because of the responses to the survey question. The question was, or the statement, I should say, is this. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. Now, about you, I would flat out 100% disagree with that statement, but it might surprise you to find that 28% of respondents somewhat agreed with that idea, and another 20% flat out agreed with it. They agreed with the idea that the Bible is not always true, and it's more like an ancient mythological book. Well, an even more recent survey in 2019 by LifeWay Research found that only 32% of American Protestant churchgoers read their Bible every single day in a week. 32%. And another 27% say they only read their Bibles a few times in a given week. All those stats just mean one thing. Churchgoers aren't reading their Bibles. And I don't think we have to like wonder or be confused as to why the church has so many problems when the very book that we've been given that defines and delineates the church's meaning and message and mission is being regarded to the sidelines, is being treated as a mythological textbook that has no meaning on modern life. The Bible's being ignored. And that's why the church is suffering with so much doubt and question and exiting and dispersion. Because the scriptures are not being opened. They're not being studied. We, uh, uh, I think it's, there's a lot of, that we can say to that. But I think that's one of the reasons why Psalm 119 is so relevant. Because it's not, so, so to speak, easy to grasp what King David is trying to say. It takes some labor. It's tedious. Psalm 118, if you read all of it, what will kind of, I, I imagine King David writing Psalm 119, not just in a sitting. He's just not writing this in an hour, so to speak. He's kind of going back to this 
over and over again throughout his years. If To use a modern thing, he has like a Word document open on his computer. And every single time that he goes through something in his life, a phrase will pop up. A thought will pop up about the statutes of God or the commandments of the Lord or the law of God. And he's going back to that Word document and writing it down over the course of years. And so really, if you read Psalm 119, it's really just a testimony of how God's truth was relevant to him over a long sustained period of time. Something which he was constantly learning. You're seeing David learn how relevant the word is moment by moment in his own life. As he's enduring whatever trial David is enduring. And we know, of course, from scriptures that David's life was full of heartache and trial. But here we see this moment-by-moment sufficiency of God's word. And I think that's really what our text kind of brings us to. So I want to read you this stanza. I'm looking at stanza number 3, which starts at verse 17. Psalm 119, verse 17. I'm going to read through verse 24. David writes... Deal bountifully with thy servant that I may live and keep thy word. Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. I am a stranger in the earth. Hide not thy commandments from me. My soul breaketh for the longing that it hath unto thy judgments at all times. Thou hast rebuked the proud that are cursed, which do err from thy commandments. Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept thy testimonies. Princes also did sit and speak against me, but thy servant did meditate in thy statutes. Thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. Here you can see David's prayer for the Lord to consider him. But I love how he starts this out in verse 17. He writes, deal bountifully with me. Consider me, God. Remember me and in my condition. If you look at the other Psalms of David, he repeats the same phrasing in uh, Psalm 13 and the Psalm 116. It's a prayer that he often referred back to. And that's why I think it's, this is something that David is constantly thinking and ruminating on and meditating. He's chewing on the promises of God and they're becoming more and more real to them as they are proving to be more and more relevant. And this phrase, deal bountifully, though, has this even more of a picturesque meaning. It actually has the idea of uh, literally what he's praying for is, God, embrace me as if you are a nursing mother weaning an infant. That's the type of embrace he is asking for. That's the type of picture he's leaning into. You want to know how David thought of the word, uh, thought of the scriptures? It was as if it was his nursing mother. That's how intimate it was. That's how real and effectual it was for David. And such is the comfort he desires. Such is the meaning that it holds to him. And I think for us too, this is the consolation that the scriptures give to us. Because just like David, we are often brought to the point, where I think we should be brought to the point, where no matter what season of trial or turmoil that we endure... God's words are words of warmth and rest, words of comfort and relief, of stillness and calmness of soul. Because these promises are true and everlasting. 
For every single thing that we endure in life, we can come to these scriptures and find something that speaks to us. And so tonight, I want to jump through this stanza, and I want to show you three, I think, instances in which God's word speaks to us in three different types of seasons of life. These won't be perhaps comprehensive, but I think, first of all, I want you to notice in verses 17 through 19, God's word for your ignorance. God's word for your ignorance. Look at what he says here. He says in verse 18, open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Notice he says, God, open my eyes. I don't want you to conceal things from me and what I know, from my knowledge, from my experience. I want you to reveal to me these things. Open my eyes. Unveil your intentions and your purposes. God, I want you to not let me be ignorant any longer of what you are doing. Can you, have you ever prayed that before? <laughs> God, I feel really ignorant as to why I'm enduring this sort of suffering, as to why I'm going through this trial. Open my eyes so I can see and behold these wondrous things out of your law. And in this, David, the king of Israel, is confessing his own ignorance of his own life. He is not sure why this trial, this season of turmoil is affecting him in this way. Even though he knows God's commands, he's unsure as to why this is afflicting him. He's unsure of the way forward. And so he is leaning into and clinging to God's words. Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law, he says. Hide not, verse 19, hide not thy commandments from me. Don't conceal them. Reveal them, God. This was his source of comfort and relief. God's words, God's promises. Even though it it might have felt like God was abandoning him, he doesn't uh, make that a cause to sort of jettison his his faith and relinquish the things of God. He actually doubles down and leans harder. God, reveal more things. This doesn't make sense, but I'm leaning into your word. I'm trusting into you, trusting your promises. And such is why he's praying here. God, reveal this to me. This, I think, is incredibly relevant for us. Because these, this day and age that we live in, of course, can be full of all kinds of trouble and turmoil. Stuff that clouds our judgment and discernment of our acknowledgement of God's involvement in our lives. I don't know about you, but as a first-year senior pastor, going through something like the last several months has made me really question as to, uh, God, what are you doing? I I don't see God's purposes in this. I don't see God's plans in this. I feel rather ignorant. I feel rather like I have no idea what God, how can this be part of God's mission To move forward the kingdom of God. Why would he allow something like COVID-19? And yet all through it all. God his persistent promise is this. Is that regardless of what, what the evidences appear like. Regardless of what the condition and the situation says. God's mission in this world is unstoppable. His kingdom cannot be thwarted by any sort of thing that appears in this earth. 
It's not going to be stopped by COVID-19. It's not going to be stopped by anything that pops up into this life. Any season of, of, of trouble or any season of trial, it cannot be thwarted. God's kingdom cannot be stopped. And the thing is, we may never be, uh, we may never have this prayer answered. King David is saying, God, open down my eyes. Hide not what you are doing. Don't hide your will from me. Let me see into it. Let me know the reason why. Remove this ignorance. And I think uh, I can confess to you that I've prayed that prayer before. I don't want to be, uh, just be made to uh, suffer in ignorance. I want to know why. Why is this suffering happening? Why is this trial coming into my life? And I'll tell you that you may not ever know. You may not ever have this prayer answered, at least not in the way that you want it to. <laughs> because I think we can know uh, the ultimate purpose of why we are here on this earth, even if we are not made to know why we are made to have all these sufferings on earth. Because the ultimate purpose for you and I and everyone who has ever lived is the same. And it comes back to that song that seems, that hymn, that seems so incredibly simplistic. You want to know your purpose? Trust and obey. I always come back to the book of Ecclesiastes when we're talking about modern life and the Christian and faith and all those sorts of things. Because what is, what is Solomon, after trying every single avenue that's ever possible to find comfort and relief and pleasure and purpose and meaning and all these sorts of things, what does he come back to? Fear God and keep his commandments. Or, in modern terms, trust and obey. That's your purpose. That's your mission. And regardless of the, the surrounding things that are going on, you can know your ultimate purpose, your ultimate mission. Trust God, the God who is the one who is over your season of turmoil, the one who is lording over it. Trust in him and obey his word. You see, trusting God is not knowing the future. I think we wish it was I wish I could be a fortune teller and one who knows and can perceive into the future. And I can tell you exactly what's going to happen now and what's going to happen in November. I can't tell you that. I have no idea. No one does, though. And that's the point. Faith is not about knowing the future. You know what it's about? It's about knowing the one who does know the future. It's about knowing and believing and trusting in the one who has already ordained the future from before the foundations of the world. About knowing the one who has died for every single one of your sins before you were even born. It's about knowing that type of a God. A God who has already ordained the future already. And this is the point, that God might not explain what he's doing. He might not alleviate your ignorance in that sort of way. We may not ever know why these seasons of life come about, and that's okay. It's not for us to know. That's why it's called faith. One of my favorite writers, he puts it this way. The life of faith is simply the constant willingness to trust that there's another hand that holds our life along with us. That's faith. It's not about knowing the future and what the weeks may hold and what the days may hold and what the years may hold. It's about knowing that regardless of what happens, that there's another hand that is holding us. And guess what? Those hands are the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. 
He's holding us even now. He is sustaining us even now. You may live uncertain of the next step, the next way forward, the next few weeks forward, the next few years forward. But you can be certain of one thing. That there is a God who is holding you and sustaining you. And this is the point, that the gospel's cure for ignorance is not some sort of divine illumination of God's secret will. It's the gracious information of God's Savior. You want to have your ignorance cured? The gospel is the cure for your ignorance. Because guess what? It doesn't tell you how the world's going to end. It tells you the one who has already overcome the world. Jesus says that, John 16, 33. You're going to have trouble. In this life, in this world. But guess what? I've already overcome the world. And in that, our ignorance can be stilled. It can be made to rest. Not because we know the future, but because we know the one who has the future. The one who has ordained it. The one who has already written it out. The one who has already planned everything that we will ever go through. This is that God. I think about that a lot of times because it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to not know why God is doing something. I want to know. I want to know the reasons. I want to have, an, have it explained for me. Sometimes God keeps us ignorant. The way our faith is built. God's word for our ignorance. It comes back to Jesus. So I want to look next. God's word for your ignorance. God's word number two for your isolation. Look at verse 18 again. He says, open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. I am a stranger in the earth. Hide not thy commandments from me. My soul breaketh for the longing that it hath unto thy judgments at all times. So here he's confessing his isolation. You can feel David's sense of loneliness. He says, I am a stranger in this world, a stranger in the earth. Literally, I'm a foreigner. I'm a nomad, a person without a country. He's feeling and giving voice to that loneliness that he feels deep inside of him, deep within him, because he doesn't feel at home in this world. We, we, we often have the terms like pilgrim and sojourner, and such is what this word is here. He's a sojourner in this life. Feels like he doesn't belong. Such, is the, as such, I think, is the identity of everyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ. We are all sojourners, wandering pilgrims, going through a life because we are not part of this world in the sense that we are not aligned to its precepts and its principles. You see, the isolation that you may feel, that you may resonate with in King David's life is normal and natural. You are not made to feel comfortable with the world's philosophies because at the moment of faith, you pledge allegiance to Jesus. You are made an antagonist of the world's philosophies. You're their enemy. You're the one that they are opposing. Devotion to Jesus puts you at odds with the world such that you cannot feel at home. Such that you aren't made to feel as if you belong. And not because of any material thing, but because of your message, because of your mission. It goes up against their philosophies, the way that they think. And it's enriching to know that we are God's friends, even when we feel like we are foreigners. 
And that's the good word for us. That yes, we may feel like we are strangers and sojourners in this this life, but God calls us his friends. Friends that are so dear to him that he says that I will die for them. See, David, he felt this dearly in his soul. He felt this this weight of loneliness. It was crushing him. He says, my soul breaketh. It's crushed. Under the ache that he feels for when all of this promises of God will one day finally be fulfilled. When this sojourn will be over. When this journey as a pilgrim will be done. But I think here he's giving voice to the blessing of loneliness that we, you and I may feel. Because the soul that pulses with a pilgrim spirit will feel a painful longing after the Lord's presence. And that's a good thing. The soul that feels lonely will will pulse and feel a a greater sense of longing for God's presence. And that's the good word that comes to us. Why? Because we are made to see that when we are in God's word, just as David, God's word has uh, many blessings for those who feel isolated. The first one I want you to just kind of see just really quickly is uh, God's word connects us to history. You know, he says there, my soul breaketh for the longing that it hath unto thy judgments at all times. A hint to me at the historical nature of the word of a God. When you articulate the words God for us, you're not just saying words that are are giving meaning to you in this present moment. Guess what? You are saying words that the church has said for thousands of years. We oftentimes, I think, get so uh, sort of caught up in our and cloistered in our present moments when we realize that this thing called the church has been moving forward uh, for thousands of years. With thousands, countless millions of unnamed people being named among the faithful in Hebrews 11. God's word, God's kingdom cannot be stopped Because God's church is held by God himself. When you are voicing the gospel. You're voicing the truth that has been held for thousands of years. You literally have a a cloud of witnesses that all testify to the same thing. That this God is greater than anything that you face. That this God of the gospel is the one who holds all things All things in the palms of his hands. This is the resounding truth of the word. But not only does God's word connect us to history. Even greater as it says in verse 18. God's word connects us to himself. Notice he says open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things. Out of thy law. We learn wondrous things when we behold this word of God. And there's no more wondrous thing, I think, that we can uh, behold than the fact that this word of God has been fulfilled for us already on our behalf. When you read God's word, you are being connected with God himself. Not just a force, an entity, some sort of spiritual, mystical thing. You are reading the words of a real person who has really loved you and who has really died for you. It's connecting you with God 
himself. The word for your isolation is just that good. It's just that profound. That there's a person. There's a person who knows your plight. There's a person who knows exactly what you are feeling. There's a person who has been touched in every single way with the feelings of your infirmities, as the writer of the Hebrews said. He knows every single season of doubt. Every single season of anger and frustration and confusion and ignorance and isolation. He knows it all. He has felt it all. God's word connects you with that person. With this type of savior. Who is familiar, as it says in Isaiah 53. Who, as it says, he's been acquainted. It literally means he's been introduced to our sufferings. You have a savior who has been introduced to all of the ends of the sufferings that you and I have uh, have been made to endure. He has felt it and seen it and felt it in his own body. And I mean that literally, in his own body. Jesus has felt it. You know one of the most amazing things? This is in my notes, it's for free. You know one of those amazing things that I think about oftentimes? Going back to John 19. You just went through John. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to rehash my dad. Um, I don't mean to do that. But I love in John how after uh, the crucifixion has happened, you find the disciples and where are they? They're locked in a room. It says the door is barred. The door is shut. It's locked. It's jammed. And why? If you read John 19 again, it says out of fear of the Jews, they're scared out of their wits because of all of the events of this, that they might be held culpable for the stealing of the Lord's body. I love that scene. Because there they are. They're scared. (laughs) Even though they shouldn't have been because all along Jesus has been predicting not just his death. I've, I've been going through Mark and you see this in the gospel of Mark. Every time Jesus predicts his death, he follows it up with a prediction of, of his resurrection. They should have known what was going to happen. And yet they were still kind of dense and they didn't get it. So there they are in the upper rooms kind of scared. And then Jesus comes through the door that is locked. And that would be cool enough on itself. An apparition coming through a spiritual form of God is now in their midst. But that's not the amazing part. The amazing part is the person that walks through the wall is also the person that died on the tree. And he has the same body that was put in the grave. Is there standing in front of them because he invites the disciples, not just Thomas. He invites all the disciples to come to him and see and put their hands in the scars that his body, yes, his body of flesh and bone and blood still has. That body is still there for you in glory, by the way. Those scars are still marking our Savior and glory. They don't go away. They remind us that this God condescended to such a low degree that even in his eternal glorified body, it still bears the marks of suffering. That's the type of Savior you have. The type of God you have. 
that he takes on human flesh. And he has that flesh ripped from him. So that he could die for your sins. So that he could make a way for you to be saved. That's the extent of what it means that Jesus sojourns with us. He sojourns and he, he is that pilgrim spirit just like us in all of the pain and the grief and the suffering that we feel. He has felt it all. So you may feel lonely, isolated. You have a savior who knows exactly how you feel. God's word introduces and connects us to that savior, that type of a person, a personable God who knows all the feelings of our infirmities. But lastly, let me look, let me move quickly. God's word for your ignorance, God's word for your isolation. Look at verses 21 through 24 at God's word for your indignity. Notice he says, thou hast rebuked the proud that are cursed, which do err from thy commandments. Remove me from reproach and contempt, for I have kept thy testimonies. Princes also did sit and speak against me, but thy servant did meditate in thy statutes. Thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. You know, the isolation that we endure as the church, as those who have our self-proclaimed Christians, because of that allegiance to God, it will naturally, I think, lead to lots of indignant remarks, slander being thrown at us at times. And here, David is confessing that very thing. Remove me, he says, from reproach and contempt. He was surrounded by insults and slanders of his character and his reputation. Which goes to show that there will always exist those who want to deter and dishearten your faith. There will always exist enemies of the truth. And it's oftentimes difficult to weather those times. Unless we are praying like David did. Because here, notice, in the midst of all of this scoffing and slander that was surrounding him. He is vowing to make God's word his meditation. Notice verse 23 again. Princes also did sit and they spoke against me. But thy servant did meditate in thy statutes. Thy testimonies are also my delight and my counselors. He wants to meditate on these truths of the word of God. That means literally to sit in them. To consider them so deeply that he's just sitting in the word. Have you ever done that? Just kind of sat in silence, chewing on a specific word of the Lord. This is what David is praying to do. What King David, the king of Israel, is seeking to drown out all of the slanderous remarks that were coming against him by what? By sitting in the word of God. Meditating on it. Letting his source of delight and direction be driven from this word. As he says in verse 24. They are my delight and my counselors. And I love that fact. I love the fact that David is yes being maligned and ridiculed. For the fact that he is aligning himself with God. And what is he doing? He's doubling down again. Reaffirming the fact that I'm going to go to God. To drown out the noise of all of that ridicule. By being more devoted to the source of my ridicule. 
He's going back to the thing that the, the proud, as he says there, are jeering him for. He's staking his life on the words of God. He's planting his flag, so to speak, in the truths of Jehovah for him. It's the only voice that he listened to. The voice that he was listening to was not his heart. You know, that, that old adage, let your conscience be your guide, is not very wise counsel. The, the adage of today is follow your heart. No, please do not. Don't follow your heart. It's going to get you into a world of trouble and a mess of hurt. Follow God's word. Don't follow your heart. Don't let your conscience be your guide. Follow the scriptures. Just as David says, they are his delight. They are also his counselors. They give him direction. They give him joy. They give him peace. Follow that. Because your heart is going to change. Your heart is going to waffle. It's going to flip and it's going to flop from this thing and the next. You know what never changes? God's word. You know what never is alterable? God's word. You know what is completely unstoppable? The mission of God. And where do we go to find the mission of God? God's word. It cannot change. Do you know that... The saying that's being reiterated a lot in these uncertain times. You have the ultimate source of certainty right in front of you. The word of God that speaks to you. And no matter what season you find yourself. Whether you find yourself being maligned by your friends for this hokey thing that you believe in. Whether you find yourself isolated because everyone has left you because of your belief and devotion in God. Whether you feel like you're ignorant because the season of suffering doesn't make sense. You have the certainty of God himself in the palm of your hands. The certainty that he will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's not trite. That's not cliche. That is truth. God's word is true no matter what season you are in. And this is my prayer for myself. It's my prayer for the church and everyone. This church, my church back in PA and lots of other churches too. But it's really for myself. That I would learn to, I would relearn, I should say, to esteem God's word above every single other source of insight and information. There are a lot of places and people trying to get your attention, to give you their truth. There's only one source of truth, and it's God's word. It's the truth that can cut through all of the other, quote, truths that are being uh, proclaimed in our day and age. Don't let your conscience be your guide. Let God's word be your guide. Let the truth inform you that you have a Savior who has felt all of your infirmities. That you have a King whose kingdom cannot be demolished or thwarted. By anything that man tries to do. It may not seem like God's kingdom is imminent right here and right now. But it is. God can do anything that he desires. 
He is in complete and in sovereign control over everything that happens. He is the king and he hasn't abdicated his throne and he won't ever. He hasn't now and he will never leave his throne. This is, that's sort of the thing that I've been learning. That I've been coming to the conclusion that yes, Jesus is my savior, but he's also my king. The king of a kingdom that we often cannot see, but yet we know is right in front of us. And is embodied in this person of Jesus Christ who promises us that his kingdom is coming to this world. No matter what the outside circumstances may, may feel like or look like. This is what God's word tells us. It has a word for every single circumstance and condition. Trust God's word. Believe God's word. May I urge you, read God's word. Let us pray.